Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 186. The dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. Lori Grainer. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my indie film hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Video Blocks. Now, guys, when I was shooting my show for Legendary Pictures, uh, and I did that 96 pages in four days, I actually got into post and we used a lot of stock footage, stock sounds, and even some uh, graphics from Video Blocks. They are an amazing resource. With your membership, you are granted the rights to use that footage forever in perpetuity on any projects you want to. So if you want to try a seven-day free trial, and by the way, anything you download during those seven days is yours to keep. And if you decide to stay, you get 84% off the yearly membership. It is well worth it, guys. Trust me, if you do a lot of production, it is something you really need. So just head over to videoblocks.com forward slash hustle. And today's show is also sponsored by Masterclass and Martin Scorsese's Masterclass, if you can believe it. Marty is teaching you how to direct films in his amazing new masterclass. I signed up instantly, and I cannot wait for it to come out. To pre-enroll to get early access, just head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash Scorsese. That's IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash S-C-O-R-S-E-S-E. So before we get into the episode, guys, I've got some kind of big news, stuff thing I've been talking about for a little while. I told you guys I was going to be updating and creating some really new cool content on our YouTube channel. And as promised, I have. If any of you tribe members have been on the YouTube channel, you have noticed that we have restarted releasing a series called The Director Series by very, very talented filmmaker Cameron Beale. The Director Series is a insane video essay series going deep. And when I say deep, I mean deep into some of the most legendary contemporary directors as well as classic directors. And the first director up is David Fincher. We have four of the five episodes released. We'll be releasing one a week um, for at least another four or five months. Uh, and then we're going to be releasing them as they get done. But these these are very deep guys. And if you like going into the work of some of these directors like David Fincher, you know, Cameron goes into every every music video every music every commercial 
every feature film, uh, how his style changes over time, breaking down his style, why he does what he does. It is, and it's addictive. I tell you, I've been working on them, just getting them ready and editing. And sometimes I'll just press play to check and edit. And all of a sudden I look down, I've been watching it for another 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, damn, I got to get kept going. They are addictive. And everybody who has seen them on the, on the, uh, the channel has really, really loved them. The, the comments are really good. We're getting a tremendous amount of likes and uh, it's starting to catch on. So if you guys want to head over and check that out, go to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash YouTube. And the directors that are up on the plate coming up after Fincher are Chris Nolan, Stanley Kubrick, P.T. Anderson, and the Coen brothers. I'm telling you, this is an amazing series. I cannot wait to share these with you in the coming weeks and months. So definitely check it out. Now here at Indie Film Hustle, you know, I'm all about making the most out of what you've got. And shooting in one location is definitely one of those skills that we all need to do if we're going to do a low-budget, micro-budget, or no-budget feature film. How do you make a house look interesting throughout an entire movie without it just looking like Master Shot Theater or you're shooting a play? Well, today's guest is Michael Williams, who just directed an amazing horror movie called The Atoning. And this movie takes place completely in one house. And the way he shot it was very visually stimulating it kept the story going and kept my eyes going and i wanted to have him on the show so he can kind of share his secret sauce on how he went about shooting a very low budget horror movie all within one house so without any further ado here is my conversation with michael williams and i'd like to welcome to the show michael williams man thank you so much for doing the show no problem thanks for having me Thanks, man. So I always like to get an origin story of uh, any, any of our guests. So how did you get into this crazy business we like to call the film biz? Um, well, I always loved movies. I was really into Tim Burton films growing up. Beetlejuice was my first ever favorite film, um, but also loved you know, Indiana Jones and that kind of thing. So originally I was going to be an archaeologist because um, I was obsessed with history and you know old ancient stories and things like that mm -hmm. and then once you know lord of the rings came out i was wanting to do special effects i was like oh that's so awesome mm -hmm. but then all of that i realized really led to i like seeing films that take you to a place and times you can't experience elsewhere you know you can't really can't go back to the titanic era but i can watch titanic and kind of feel like what those people felt like so when i started realizing that and how much i just like the creative world kind of transitioned into making films so i could explore you know, stories that are either historical or, you know, things that I couldn't experience elsewhere. Um, and that happened all around my junior, senior year of high school. And I was doing really just silly videos with my, you know, youth group friends in school. And that was before YouTube was really a thing. So we were shooting on high eight cameras and I would get them on DVD, which was really, really hard back then. Mm -hmm. And then show them to the youth group. And we were doing just really, you know, stupid videos using copyrighted music, just like putting them on these high eight videos. And then once I realized there was film festivals um, in Mississippi, uh, someone encouraged me to submit to the Tupelo Film Festival. So I made a film that had, you know, a music that was written by a local person and made a little kind of music video and got it into a film festival. And at that festival, I met my college professor who told me I should go to a school for film. So I transferred from Mississippi State to Southern Miss at that time. Mm -hmm. And then also I met the lady who gave me my very first film job as a camera assistant. So two years later, she hired me as a camera assistant, kind of threw me into it. And I was going to be a PA at first. And then they said, mm -hmm. we need a camera assistant. And I was like, sure. Um, and then they kind of had a week long, um, I guess I got with the DP a week before and he kind of showed me what it really meant to be a 
AC and focus cooler. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of threw me into that. And that's kind of where it led me to today. So I always tell people film festivals is a huge, huge avenue for figuring out what you're going to do and meet people who can help you do it. Now you, so you basically came up through the camera department. Right. Yeah. Started as a camera assistant. Um, and then once, you know, a few years into that, I started DPing smaller gig things and now I'm mostly just DP. Okay, great. So then, you, so then, so you're, th- that's what pays to the bills basically is DPing. Um, not as much as I would like, um, <laughs> wedding videos. I have a video and photography business. So, okay. um, since 2010, I've had a video and photography business doing weddings, commercials, headshots, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I closed my actual storefront, um, let's see, 2015 or 16. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. It was one of those years I closed it. Um, and so since then I've been trying to move to film full time, but I still work out at home doing your know, weddings and things like that to fill in the spaces, but working towards film full time. Great. So then you, you, you've got a way to sustain yourself while you're right. chasing the dream. Oh yeah, definitely. That's a big thing that a lot of filmmakers don't get that. <laughs> yeah. You got to make money. I mean, you can live frugally and you can make movies frugally, but you still got to have money to do both of those. Ex- something at least. Yeah, yeah. At least. Or if not, if not your money, somebody else's money. <laughs> True. <laughs> exactly. So you got your now. Your second feature is called the atoning, uh, right. and uh, it's. I saw the trailer for it. It is. It looks scary as hell. It was shot in just twelve days. Yeah, they're pretty. Yeah, pretty swift days. Yeah, they're pretty quick. Pretty quick ones. Okay, and then did you do it all twelve days in in a row? Uh, well, we had um, six days and an off day, then six days. Got it. So then, uh, how? what made you want to do a film in one location like this? Like, and, and do it so quickly. Oh, uh, well, my previous feature was called Ozland and I can't even name the number or, or count the number of locations we had because it was a post-apocalyptic drama about, you know, two wayfarers wandering post-apocalyptic Kansas. When they find a book, they, they find the actual book, the wizard of Oz and begin to think that it's real. So we drove to Kansas, filmed three and a half, half days and a bunch of locations came back to mississippi and filmed all over mississippi sometimes four locations five locations a day very guerrilla style right um so that film was very dirty hot dusty so many locations so many decrepit locations that i was like okay the next film is gonna be simpler it's gonna be (laughs) in one location um plus we were trying to you know make a horror film for on a budget and so i knew that we could do osland that way because of the the way we shot it if we were going to shoot a film in you know 12 days and have a bigger crew we really need to be more centralized and i really wanted the comfort of being in in a place with actual electricity and you know air conditioning and that kind of thing so that kind of all is you know i told myself i wasn't going to make another dirty dusty outdoor movie um and the next one was going to be different and now i think i may go back to an outdoor winter movie next you know so i'm going to kind of swap it up so no more mad max for you is what you're saying Right, yeah, not not for a while. <laughs> okay, no problem. Now, how did you get your film funded? Which is always a big question a lot of filmmakers ask. Right. Well, when we did Ozland, we our goal was always to get noticed with the film, and it was a film that we you know funded from um, a crowdfunding campaign. But we also had a grant from the state. Mississippi has a really good filmmaking film, filmmaking grant for Mississippi filmmakers, so that kind of kickstarted the process. Mm-hmm. So Ozland was all you know, raising money that way, selling DVDs and my short films, you know, kind of whatever we could do to get our budget, but we had nobody to pay back. So that was kind of luxury of that. So we made this film and we were getting it out there, got distribution and kind of had a lot of big hoopla around it. Um, but that attracted the attention of a couple of investors who came to me and said, well, what are you planning on doing next? Um, and so I was like, well, I don't know. I'm still trying to promote Ozland and find the time to think about what's next. And so Michael Accor was one of those producers who saw Ozland was very impressed and said, well, 
he always tells me, well, if you can do it for that amount of money, we should make five of those a year. And I was like, um, there's no way I can do five movies a year, but <laughs> I like your, 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 um, your enthusiasm. So we got together and we were developing a different project, I guess, earlier the year before, but then we kind of switched gears. So let's do a really small horror film for this amount of money. If we can do it for this amount, we can you know, definitely get our money back and get a couple other investors on board. So he brought in another um, producer, Dan Wood, who also came in as a producer and investor. And so we had, you know, three investors total who came in, gave us our budget and let us do it. So, um, you know, I didn't want to do crowdfunding again because we did that with Ozland and that was such a oh. community effort and I had to ask so many favors. And so I was so thankful for that. And I kept telling people, you know, Ozland's going to be the film that will make us not have to do that again. Um, I don't want to do it again. So we ended up being lucky that that's what happened. You know, we made Ozland, we impressed people. Um, we showed people we could do with a little bit of money and said, Hey, if you give us a little bit more, we can do something even better. Um, and that's kind of how we went around funding it. Very cool. Now, what as, as a DP, how do you keep the image interesting just shooting one location? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. it's an hour and a half in one place. So what did you do right. to make it really interesting? That was a fun challenge because, like, with Ozland, it was so easy because every location was new. Every location had its own aesthetic. Um, but with the atoning, we were stuck in this house the entire the entire film never left it. Um, but we utilized every single room and every single um, – you know, camera angle. So we shot in the black magic, which was a great film for its size and its, you know, um, convenience. Mm-hmm. And we really, we maximized whatever angle we could get. You know, I got into corners, got on ladders and every scene was structured so that we would only use, even for that, even if we're in that same room again, we wouldn't see it in the same way. Um, in particular, Sam's room, the, the little boy in the film, his room was the room that I hated the most because we spent so much time in there that it did get hard to figure out how to make this room interesting for the sixth time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kind of, you know, when we were going through our shots list and figuring out how we were going to shoot it, we we're like, well, okay, well, what is the scene really about? How can we approach it? So some scenes are just one shot or some scenes are, you know, a lot of shots. So we, fi- we try to figure out what was the key point of that scene and how do we want to see it visually and then work that into that room so that it felt new every time we were in that room. Very cool. And then, and you did basically the same thing. You rinsed, repeated for every other location, every other scene you had in the in the movie. Right. Yeah. So I kept some scenes, you know, very simplistic, um, but then some scenes were more involved when they needed more coverage. Um, and things got a little more um, as the film gets a bit more into the story, and things start turning on end and getting a little more fantastic and things like that. That's when the camera angles start changing or getting a little more drastic. So earlier in the film, it's a little more stale and static, and then you know, kind of revamping it and bringing more life into it later on in the story to keep you interested. So I'm going to geek out a little bit now. Uh, yeah. the, you shot with the black magic, you shot with the 4k cinema, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what was your experience with the camera as far as workflow? Did you shoot raw? Did you shoot ProRes? Uh, we did ProRes just because the raw was going to be too much of a, um, a burden on our, you know, our DIT department, mm-hmm. which was basically just me at the end of the day. So, um, we, <laughs> another field you know, shooting. Yeah. But shooting in ProRes was, I mean, yeah, obviously shooting 4k would have been awesome, but with the ProRes and the black magic, it was exactly what we needed. Mm-hmm. Um, because I try to shoot as a DP on set, how I want it to look. Um, so I got, when I got to my colorist, I basically said, this is kind of how I want it to look. We'll fix some errors here and there, or there maybe some shots underexposed. We'll fix those. But, um, the actual look of the film, we wanted to keep pretty true to what was on, you know, on set and just kind of enhance it. Mm-hmm. And that allowed us to use the ProRes without really feeling held back by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also allowed us to, you know, film more every day on each card and, you know, not have as much of a data load. 
So the flexibility of that with the black magic of being able to shoot in ProRes but still get a really good quality footage um, that's really good for the, the colorist who had no issues with it. Great. So you didn't run into any trouble on set as far as like, oh, I overlit that or oh, I underlit that. Well, yeah, there was actually there was one scene. There's a scene um, that's at night where the kid has a flashlight. Mm-hmm. And I overlit that scene um, just because I was I was in Sam's room. I think that day I was just really tired of that room. And I kind of did the same lighting setup we had previously used. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just didn't quite work. This room was too bright. But our colorist, Jared Hollingsworth, I told him, you know, we got to make this look a little more dramatic. It's got to look like he actually needs a flashlight. And so when he, he went in, he used DaVinci Resolve and, um, you know, color that that whole scene and fix, fix the color, fix the contrast, fix the exposure. And it really does look like what it should have looked like. You know, it kind of covered my, you know, my error of, you know, over lighting it, but he had no trouble taking the footage and, you know, making it more dynamic and taking it, take it into a darker place than it you know, originally was. Now, how large was your crew? Cause I mean, you're in one little location. So how, how, how many people did you have around you? Um, it was about 15 to 20 people depending wow. on the day. Um, some days were a little less, um, but our core crew, you know, we had a, you know, me as the DP, then I had a camera assistant, and then we had a gaffer, a um, couple of grips, you know, two sound people, boom, and mixer. Um, yeah, and then everybody else kind of wore a lot of hats. So we had, you know, at least one person for each department, and sometimes we had a couple more. And then on the demon days, we had a larger makeup department, about three or four people, and typically we just had, you know, the one makeup girl. Right, because the, the, and the demon does look pretty badass, I have to say. Yeah, our, um, our makeup team did some – I was really proud of them because they didn't have a whole lot of R&D um, time. They didn't really – we had to figure out a lot on set because it, it was a very swift process from writing to casting to prepping to shooting. It was just way fast. Um, but they were able to you know, do one demon a day. So we had one demon each day. Even though if they were in the same scenes, we would just shoot those scenes twice. Mm-hmm. Um, just do one demon side. And you know, even if it was a fight scene between the two demons and a person, we would have to shoot the fight scene where you couldn't see the other demon wasn't there. So that was fun, but it allowed them to focus on one demon per day. And each day the demons got better. So the one you don't see as much, you know, you know, if we had some errors there, they had to kind of fix those for the one that you saw more full body and more hands on. So. Mm-hmm. Now, a real quick question about the actors and about casting. Uh, mm-hmm. I see that obviously the actors that you have are really good from what I've seen in the trailer. Uh, mm-hmm. But did you make a conscious effort not to, try to go after more named talent or more you know bankable talent as opposed to uh, going with people that just are good for the role or did you think the genre could kind of carry the movie without having to have bankable talent in it just curious right yeah that's something that i always struggle with um because people you know you'll talk to people who say you have to have a name you have to have a bankable talent um and i think that's true to some to some extent depending on what your budget is but when you're a super you know limited low budget film you can't afford to do that. And I think it also, you sacrifice stuff. You sacrifice what you can pay your crew, um, how much money you have on set for food or housing. Like you have to kind of pick your battles. And I think, you know, if you're going to put all your money into a named person, it's got to be somebody, you know, is going to get you distribution and that sort of thing. And that's not something you can always say, yes, that's going to happen. Um, but I know films that, you know, from my last film being distributed and other films that were distributed at the same time, I was like, you know, this film did fairly well without a named person. And so being that it is a horror film, I kind of, you know, our, me and the producers, we talked about that, but I was like, you know, if it's a horror film, it's a genre film, no one's going to really care who's in it, especially if there's a good cover art, um, which we're going to be in Redbox. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that our distributor, any distribu- all the distributors you talked about or talked to said, you know, you're probably not going to, you know, get into Redbox. You don't have a name. You know, you do have the horror angle, but it's just really hard to get into Redbox. Um, but we did. 
and they bought 20,000 copies. So it's nice. like, no, that's like a pretty big thing. We're actually announcing it tonight. So I'm pretty excited. We're going to go to Redbox locations live and tell people because we haven't been able to tell anybody yet. Um, but it's, you know, something that we didn't think would happen. But when it did happen, it kind of reaffirmed that, yes, we didn't have name talent, but we had quality talent. Um, and we also spent money on the production where we really needed it instead of, you know, trying to pull in someone and being you get when you try to bring in a name on our level. Um, so what I, you know, when we were doing casting, you know, me and Michael Gore did the casting, we were kind of talking about, you know, we really want people who write for the role. Um, and we did look at, you know, kind of people's star meters and that kind of thing, but that mm-hmm. really didn't factor in because mm-hmm. the actors we chose were, you know, like Sam, the, you know, the child actor, he hasn't mm-hmm. done a whole lot, but I've known him personally since he was in a short film of mine in 2000, I can't remember when it was, but it was a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just knew he was really good for it. And they were, our producers were kind of worried that, you know, this kid kind of has to carry the movie. He has to be good. And like, he is, I promise. Um, and so we met with some other kids who had more experience, but Canon really was the most talented and the one that was the best for the role. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did pick based on talent, but we did think about marketability, but we didn't let that hold us back. That's a very long answer to that question. Not a problem. We like long long answers. That's fine. Now, you wore both the, the director and the DP hat, among other hats that you wore. But on set, how hard is it jumping back and forth between doing those two key roles? Because I know I, I struggled a little bit with it when I did my film. So I was curious what your take was on it. Um, I guess I'm so used to doing that because I've done that my entire career whenever I'm writing, directing a film. Um, but with Ozland the hats were three or four times as many as it was on the atoning. Mm-hmm. Um, cause on Ozland, I was the only producer, um, the only AD, you know, everything, getting all the food. So I was having to do all of those things and still manage being a DP and director. Um, which it worked out because everybody kind of just, we all came together. We made it work. But for the atoning, you know, we had, had other producers that had people handling food and handling other things. So there were so many hats lifted off of me for the atoning that being a director and DP and a few other things was, a lot easier. <laughs> right. um, and with our budget and our time frame, you know, it just, it made more sense that, you know, we kind of skip a lot of those, um, I guess a lot of that process where I have the shot list and I know exactly what we're going for. And then I have people kind of help me spot check that, make sure I'm staying on track. But, you know, we didn't have to go through a whole department of people. It was just very streamlined. Um, and I can always, you know, what I usually do as a DP, I'll get with my gaffer and say, okay, this is our lighting setup. This is kind of our plan. I'll, you know, he kind of implements it and takes his own, you know, flair with it as I go and talk to the actors. And then while it's lighting, um, then I come back once it's lit and now the actors are kind of getting their, you know, getting ready for the last looks. That's when I go in to get the camera stuff ready and kind of, you know, flip back and forth without it being too difficult. Um, but just the streamline aspect makes it work really well for me when we're on this level. Um, you know, as we grow, I'll obviously, you know, consider not DPing every project because it may be too difficult. But when you're on a small film, it's easier to keep the show moving when there's less people and less parts. Now, Sometimes you got to do that. Right, now, now as, as a DP, you, you've obviously shot with a ton of different cameras. What made you choose mm-hmm. like such a small camera as opposed to like an Alexa or even an Ursa Mini or, or a Red mm-hmm. or something like that? What was, the, what was the reasoning behind shooting with – the 4K, because I've shot, I shot my feature on the 2.5 Blackmagic, so mm-hmm. I, I love the camera, but I'm just curious, so you're taking, what, what was your, dis, why did you choose that, choose that camera? Right, well, um, some of my best work that I feel like at the DP that I've done has been on either the Blackmagic, either that Blackmagic or the Pocket, specifically the uh, Pocket. I love really love the Pocket. Love the Pocket. Um, and I would have shot on that, but we really needed a 4K option, um, because a lot of filmmakers, you know, say you have to have 4K, and some say you don't. I'm in the 
the, I guess, mindset that I don't think 4K is as, is as important for certain applications as people say it is. Mm-hmm. But when you're going and you're wanting to get distribution, especially international distribution, everything points to 4K. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like with our previous distributor and other people that I've talked to, um, they mentioned how you know China was just buying up 4K content. didn't matter what it was, just because they really just wanted 4K content. I just sold, so I think, I, I just sold my movie for 4K on 4K uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, it may not, I mean, our domestic distributor is going to take our 4K version, but right now they're only releasing it in 1080, and that's all they ask for delivery-wise delivery mm-hmm. um, for our domestic distributor. So, you know, if you don't have to have it, but I think it really is a a way to kind of future-proof your film and to hopefully get some extra deals that you may not get otherwise. So we wanted a 4K option, but we wanted an affordable 4K option. And just with our budget and everything, it was just much easier to go with the Blackmagic because um, one, of, one, of produ- one of our producers actually owned it, so we were able to borrow that and use it. Um, it was just a one cam- It was just it was just a one camera shoot, right? Just one camera. Yeah, I like to shoot with one camera. I don't like shooting multiple cameras. Got it. Very cool. So you just had a, it. Just had it handy because <laughs> they're right. so affordable. Yeah. yeah, it was affordable. Our producer already owned it and owned all the equipment for it. Um, and you know, we had the Rokinon lenses, which I loved. Um, oh, you shot so with we, the Eurokis. You shot with the with the not the not the zines, but the the right. just the cinemas. Just the cinemas, yeah. Wow. Um, which I'm so excited. I actually just purchased. I got it in yesterday. I got the Ursa Mini, and I got my own set of Rokinons now. So yeah. I haven't even turned the camera on yet. I'm going to read the manual real good before I even turn it on. But um, I'm excited to kind of you know bump up now to the Ursa Mini and start shooting on that because I really did fall in love with the Black Magic after shooting so much on the pocket mm-hmm. and then kind of transitioning into the 4K. And I really wanted to you know, stick the, with that. The Ursa Mini is, is no joke. I love the Ursa Mini. It's great. Oh, yeah. And, and, and if I can suggest, uh, two lenses to add to your collection, mm-hmm. the, the Sigma 18 to 35, okay. uh, art lens and the 50 to 100 art lens. They're, uh-huh. they're photo lenses, but on the Ursa, on any of the black magics, they mm-hmm. are stunning, just oh, nice. stunning. And they're fairly affordable for what they are. You know, right. so basically with those two lenses, you could out, go out and run. And when I shot my movie, I shot with the eight, the 18 to 35, and then also a set of Rokies. Um, yeah. How fast are those? One eight. Oh, it's nice. really fast. For a zoom, that's really nice. Oh, you know, they're gorgeous, man. They're both those yeah. lenses and the 50 to 100 is, st- I mean, come on. This <laughs> is it's ridiculous. Uh, you get a nice little. I'm sorry, audience, that we're geeking out here for a second, but uh, but you could also get your little follow focus, pop out on uh, the gears, and you're and you're off and running. It's right. they're gorgeous. So they're they're great lenses. I shot. I said again, I shot most of the movie on the 18 to 35 on my movie, and then also just jumped to like the wide Rokies or the 85 or something like that on the Rokinons, mm-hmm. uh, which is really really nice. So. Nice set to, to to think about since you now have the um, the Ursa Mini as well. Oh yeah, well I'm slowly going to start building the package. I just gotta take it in steps. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> when now, you're an indie filmmaker, when you're hustling. You gotta take the steps. Uh, oh brother, I know, man. I know. I know. Every little thing buys that next little piece of gear, and hopefully that next piece of gear gets you that next job, and so on, and right. so on, and so on. Um, so uh, I know I'm an editor and a director as well. So can you discuss a little bit of the pros and cons of editing your own work? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm on the fence sometimes. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, when I was editing Ozland, it was the only option sure. um, because of our budget and just, you know, we shot on DSLR, so it wasn't anything too difficult. Um, but going into the atoning, you know, with our budget still, you know, I wanted, we, I still had to edit it and I did 
sound design, but I had a friend who did the 5.1 mix because that's something I'm, I obviously can't tackle. Um, and also I wanted to make sure we had a good colorist. Um, so Jared Hollingsworth came on as our colorist, but he did way more than just be a colorist. He kind of did all our final outs. and Online editor um, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, he did a lot of stuff for me that, you know, because I kind of – when we got to the delivery process, I was a bit overwhelmed um, just because the delivery process from Auslan to this one was so much more in depth, especially mm-hmm. internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jared, he's, you know, he is a editor at heart and also a colorist. So he understood all that stuff and he helped me troubleshoot it. And so, you know, whenever I branch away from editing, you know, he's kind of my go-to guy now. Um, but also it was really great working with him as an editor because he understood what I was trying to do as an editor, but also he understood how I could make him better or give me some good advice and also take the coloring and, you know, do a great job with it. But, um, back to what I think is why it's important to direct and, or to edit as a director, I wouldn't say it's important that you always have to do it. Um, mm-hmm. but when you can do it, um, I think it's great to help troubleshoot the story. Cause there's so many things in the story that I think if I had to try to dictate to someone, I couldn't mm-hmm. actually do it in a way that would have been effective. Um, cause some days there are just scenes that weren't working, based on a couple of different, I know, I guess a couple of different issues. So I was having to sit down and just like figure it out. Um, and just, I can't explain how I figured it out because I was just having to do it and make it work, but also mold things in ways that I didn't even anticipate. So I guess there's a way that there's a little more of my voice in the edit than it would have been had someone else edited it. Um, but someone else's voice would have, you know, been put into the project if they edited it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's something I do want to learn. I want to learn how to get away from editing and trust someone else to do it and to find that same voice or, you know, make that voice even better. Um, but also I really love being able to edit too, because that's kind of after production, I'm so worn out that all I want to do is just sit in front of a computer and take my time figuring out how to make it. And then whenever things do work, kind of having that moment of, Oh, that feels good. That worked. Um, so it's kind of a, it's kind of part of the process I love, but also I hate the technical aspect of it. I like the creative, but I hate the technical. The the, the one area of, of editing your own stuff, I agree with everything you said. Uh, the, both the one area I find, and I've been editing 20 years now, so I've edited almost everything I've ever shot. And the only time it gets a little dicey is when you were on set and it took you four hours to get that shot. And you mm-hmm. won't cut it out because you know it took you four hours to get it. <laughs> and it's a right. really tough place to be. And it, it takes a few passes of notes before someone goes, dude, that shot just doesn't work. I'm like, I know, but it took me four <laughs> or five hours to shoot it. So oh, exactly. do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And that was a big learning lesson I had on Ozland. Because um, Ozland was a pretty epic story. Um, and the original cut was two hours and five minutes. And so I was like, that's not going to work. And so I trimmed it down to an hour and 57 minutes. And that's what we screened at festivals, and that's what we had our local premiere for, and that's what we originally sent our distributor. But our distributor was like, that's fine. You can distribute it like that if you want, but you'll get more out of it if you chop you know, 10 minutes out. And I was like, Ugh, there's no way I can do that. You know, This is my baby. Um, so what I did, I went back through the timeline, and I just started chopping out five seconds here, 10 seconds there, only removed one scene. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't keeping tally of how much I was cutting out. And then when I got finished, I cut out like 12 minutes and mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, so 12 minutes could have just been gone this whole time. And I didn't even notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I learned that, you know, after I screened it for a year, I started seeing places where it kind of was not working or things that were just unnecessary or even just how trimming five seconds here or two seconds there, how much that adds up. Mm-hmm. And so I do really like the new you know, hour and 44 minute version of the film much better than the two hour version, just because it is more streamlined. It's more at the heart. And so that's what I learned with that film going into the atoning. 
I wanted it to be an hour and a half. I wrote it to be an hour and a half, and I was like, we're going to shoot it to be an hour and a half, and it ended up being 89 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of got our goal there, but I also wanted to make sure that the pace was good. And I, you know, I cut out a lot of things that I liked, um, and there's some things that I held my foot on saying we need this in here, um, not for any vanity reason or anything that I was like, you know, it took so long to get the shot. But I was like, this really is important. Um, so we got to keep these in there, even if not everyone agrees that it's important. But still keeping that pace was a big thing that I didn't want to I didn't want to repeat kind of the errors I made with Ozland where it was because it's a lot slower building movie. And I still think the pace works for some people, but not everybody. Um, so the atoning, I had to go into it knowing, okay, this is not your baby. It is hmm. your baby, but it's not like only your baby. You got to make it work for everybody. So Yeah, exactly. There's that, that part of us as filmmakers that we have to kind of like, you know, if the movie costs you five bucks, be as precious as you want. Right. <laughs> but when you have other people's money, you kind of have to work as a team. Right. Uh, and when you're doing a, a I mean, Ozlam is mostly a drama, so you can get away with it more. Um, but when it's a horror film, you're going to have people. I mean, our film's kind of more of a thriller, but it's still a horror, and it's got a really good drama aspect. But you got to kind of cater to all those genres and make all those kind of people happy. So you got to have the moments where the characters can breathe, but you also got to have that, that. You can't lose the horror audience. So that was a fun. Fun thing to keep in mind with this particular project. Now, what was the post workflow like? Did you, uh, from camera all the way to final delivery, can you kind of go through that process with with us? Um, let's see. I may have blocked most of that out of my memory, um, but <laughs> or, uh, I mean, there was. I, I could guide you. So you shot on a Black Magic ProRes. Right. What did you edit on? Right. I uh, edited on Adobe Premiere, um, okay. which was great because we could pull that footage straight in. Which that was something I was always worried about. You know, shooting on the Alexa or Red because I always, I, mean, I don't have much experience editing mm-hmm. with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was worried about having to convert everything and my computer not being able to handle it. But mm-hmm. with the Black Magic, we were able to throw the footage straight into Adobe. Don't have to convert anything, um, and I was just able to edit straight from the 4K, um, which I felt very comfortable about and making sure I wasn't. And nothing was lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did the rough cut. Um, then once it got a lot cut, I sent that to my colorist who was coloring it at the same time that my composer was, um, scoring it. Mm-hmm. And then while those things were happening, I was doing the sound design. Um, so it kind of, it was just me editing for a while. Then it split up to the colorist, um, composer, and then me doing the sound design. And then once all of those elements were finished, I sent it to my 5.1 mixer to the 5.1 mix. And that was the very last part of the process. And we were doing that during deliverable time where, um, we had to have so we, we signed with two different distributors and both distributors wanted a slightly different delivery of the same items. Um, so that was the difficult part was keeping all that straight, making sure that this distributor is getting what they need. This one's getting what they need and every little detail is right. So we would, so we would pass QC, which, you know, QC is oh. very not fun. Oh, um, QC. So, <laughs> but we're out of it now. We're out of it. As of like last week, we're out of it. What now. was the I'm most, like, okay. I have to stop you. What's the most ridiculous yeah. QC note you got? Uh, um, but there was, well, there were some that I don't, I think, cause like our demons have kind of like a popping bone cracking noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of several of our items in the QC was like, there's audio pops. I'm like, I don't, I can't find where you're just like in this big action scene where there's all like bone popping. I'm like, that's just the sound design. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some of that, we've got some of that downgraded. They didn't actually, I think go back and change that. Um, sure. what's the one that you just like, you gotta be kidding me guys. <laughs> Oh, did you remember. did you have any? Um, you got to be kidding I mean, me, guys. There were that was probably the part of the process I really shut down as a filmmaker because I was yeah. like, I can't <laughs> handle this because it's just so. Because after the marathon of making the movie, yeah, you know, I just wanted to deliver it, and then I was like, oh gosh, like more money we got to spend for a QC, and oh, yeah. you know, I mean, it's all good. It's all for a good. You know, I'm all I'm very excited that we're getting these distribution opportunities, and the fact that we had to 
go through QC, it means we're going to have better distribution opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's totally worth it. It was just when you're kind of thrown into it, it's very scary. And once you get out of it, you're like, okay, it's going to be worth it. The film's going to be more market. It's going to be more available to these international markets and domestic markets. So, um, yeah, I guess the most, I guess the some of the sound design things, I guess, is what they. Oh, really? They, kind of really- they jumped on the sound stuff. Okay, that's not too yeah, bad. Like uh, it wasn't too bad. I mean, our initial QC was like. They're like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Y'all didn't have a whole lot wrong. I'm like, oh, thank God. Um, but then they, <laughs> they dug deeper and found more things. I was like, oh, gosh. Um, which is a lot of just sound mix and sound design stuff. There was really – the only thing visual that I guess our title is a red logo and the red wasn't quite um, – Legal. Legal. So they had to kind of legalize that. But other than that, it wasn't anything too major. Now, did you ever think of or – you, or have you ever thought of editing on DaVinci? I've actually never tried it. Um, now that I have my – so many now i have actually owned da vinci and so i'm mm-hmm. gonna start playing around with it now because i didn't own it previously mm-hmm. um but um i think jared does some editing on da vinci plus he does all his color work so i know he loves it yeah um, i edited i figure out what, what i want to do it's uh, it's awesome i've edited i edited my feature film on it i edited a show that i directed mm-hmm. um as well on it and i do all my editing on it now it's right. amazing i i love it it's oh, so I'm excited to try it because I just recently went to Adobe Premiere before I was all Sony Vegas since 2005. Oh wow! Um, and so once I was like, okay, I've got to got to get. A, I mean, I love Sony Vegas; it was great for what it is, and I still use it for you know small projects every once in a while when I need to do something quick because I just I know how it works. You know, I love Adobe Premiere, but I'm not stuck to it yet, so I'm excited to try DaVinci and see if it you know. I was a out. I was a Final Cut guy. Final Cut oh. Seven guy forever, oh, wow. and I just would I just refused to jump to X and. Finally got to a point where I'm like, I need, I need to jump on something else, man. This is just too slow now. And I'm like, well, I've been a colorist for a long time. Let me just jump on this DaVinci because there's this edit tab. Yeah. And I just started literally on my feature. I just kind of threw it in there and started editing it raw because I shot my film raw yeah. uh, on the on the 245. And it was so amazing. I was like, this oh, is bet. awesome. This is awesome. And just if you can simplify that workflow, I'm sure that's just mm-hmm. a huge part of it. Yep. There's no round tripping. There's no, oh, this didn't connect. Nothing. It just all works. And if you're working in the black magic ecosystem, it's mm-hmm. heaven, 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 heaven. So, uh, what? And by the way, what made you go with Gravitas as your distributor? Because I've had Gravitas on the show before. They're a really good mm-hmm. distribution company. I was just curious what your thoughts on. Were, were- well, we um, we went through a pretty long process of talking to you know eight, ten different companies um, that all had their you know pros and cons, but everyone was very excited about the project. Um, some were more excited than others, but the ones that were super excited kind of almost was a little bit of a turnoff, um, just cause like, they said they were trying to like trying to, trying to sell us too much. Um, but with Gravitas, you know, they, they were very straightforward. Um, they liked the film. They said they could do well with it. Their, um, the way they structured their agreements and their deals was very you know nice and it, it didn't offend us or didn't feel, um, Abusive. You know, it, it just, yeah, it just felt, it felt right. Um, and so also their, I guess, the way it works when we distribute with them, it just there wasn't as much of a risk. You know, some of these other companies like, well, this is kind of a, you know, if it works out, it's fine, but there's higher risk involved. Um, but Gravitas seemed to have a really good um, track record. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some films on there that I was excited to see, and I was like, oh, they're actually distributing those films. I've been waiting to see those films. So um, just knowing that we would be in that same company, um, I was like, okay, I like this. And we kind of just when you're picking a distributor, it's tough because like you just don't, you never really know until you've been with them for a while mm-hmm. if that's was the right choice. So we just kind of did it. Um, and now, I mean, the film hasn't even come out yet, but I already feel like we're, we made the right choice because, you know, they, they pushed the film to Redbox and, you know, guys in Redbox, which, you know, they were very upfront with us. They said that probably won't happen or don't, don't count on it. They didn't get our hopes up. Um, but they still did their diligence of 
pitching it to them and giving it a try. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, they're doing that with other companies and other, other things. So I feel like, you know, they work hard. There's a big group of people who are very helpful. Um, and even just like the other day when our iTunes listing went up, I, there's a couple of errors and within 24 hours they had them fixed and let me send in new artwork and they had artwork up in like less than 24 hours. So like just being able to like talk to them and say you have an issue and then get back with you pretty quickly and resolve things pretty quickly has been really nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, mm-hmm. what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting to make their first feature film? Hmm. I would say make sure you're passionate about whatever the story is, um, but keep in mind how marketable it is. So if you're making a film that you want to get distributed, think about the genre and how it's going to be marketable, um, but find your own voice for that. Don't just do a rehash. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to do a horror thriller, do a horror thriller, but find out how it can be something that you're passionate about and that you really enjoy because it's going to be a hard process and you got to love it. Um, Ozland was super hard, but we all love the story and the, the project so much that it made it all worth it. Um, so you really got to love what you're doing, but be mindful about the business side too. You know, don't, don't get too wrapped up into your art project and make mm-hmm. sure it's something that you can market and, you know, look for those opportunities, do festivals. You got to, you got to push like Ausland was a three year, you know, hustle, um, with trying to get it out there, get it to festivals and try did, everything possible. Did that get distributed? But, yeah, it distributed. Um, we had a one week theatrical premiere in Hollywood in 2015 and we released on video on demand at the same time. So it's been out for two years. Okay. And did you do well with that movie? Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did you break was, even? Did you break even? Oh yeah. I mean, okay. we actually broke even before we actually, before we ever distributed just by doing our own, um, screening tour. So we did our like local premiere and then I screened it in about six cities around our region mm-hmm. and sold merchandise and that kind of thing. So it's on t-shirts, posters, soundtracks. So all that, like allowed us to break even then we put that back into the film to you know get it ready for distribution and do the hollywood premiere and all that kind of stuff and so since it's been distributed it's been it's had its ups and downs each quarter but it's making money it's been making money every quarter um but it's just a hard sell which is one thing i learned that you know yes it's a post-apocalyptic science fiction film but really it's a drama about two characters and a very very profound drama between two characters, it's like a character study. So it has that Wizard of Oz angle, but it's a lot more than that. And it's a pretty deep story. So people who love a good character drama or, you know, they want to really dig deep into something or they want really pretty visuals and music, you know, that's kind of what Ozland's for. But going to the atoning, I knew we had to make something that's a bit more marketable. Um, and I think if, you know, the atoning does well, Ozland will do better too. So I'm still, still have hope that Ozland's going to find its audience. Now, um, let me ask but you. It, it has found its audience. So let me ask you about Ozland a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. With, because I always preach constantly on the show and on the website about creating multiple revenue streams and that mm-hmm. your movie is just a lot of times a big marketing for other revenue streams. And you seems like you kind of did that a little bit with Ozland. So can you right. just dive in a little bit about what you did, how you did it, and how you were able to generate different revenue specifically with what kind of products, what, what was your experience doing this little tour, okay. all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so the three short films I did before Ozland was Lucos, Kane, and Illumination. Mm-hmm. Um, three very different films. You know, one's kind of a horror, one's a science fiction, and one's a superhero film. Mm-hmm. Um, so each one of those films I had to, you know, we never were going to get distribution with a short film, but we had to find some way to make money um, to be able to pay for festivals. And so we would always do a make a big deal, have our local premiere, sell posters or you know, different kinds of merchandise. And starting with Illumination, I started doing sunglasses. And so I've kind of kept the sunglass theme going for all the films and mm-hmm. kind of got people into the habit of knowing that we were going to have pretty cool merchandise and that whenever we're at a festival, there's going to be posters and all kinds of cool visuals and 
know, so much more outside the film to kind of make it more of an event. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we do. We we have our local screenings and you know, with Auslan, we kind of anywhere that we had support, we would do a screening there. So there's a lot of great people who support me in Huntsville. So we had a screening up there, or, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, different places. Did you just rent the theater? Yeah, so we, we we either you know rent the theater or um, like the, if you're in the South, Malco is amazing, the Malco mm-hmm. chain mm-hmm. because they let you rent out a theater in their Malco, you know on the, the you know digital projection screens for a night for a very affordable rate if you're an independent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just pay that outright and then you sell your tickets. So we'd always you know sell tickets ten dollars a pop and then um, sell merchandise on top of that. But we'd also sell advertisements. So we would to kind of pay for the theater and any marketing cost. Before we actually had ticket sales, we would sell ads. So I would say, you know, 25 bucks to have your name in the program, 50 bucks to have a 30 second commercial on screen before the film starts or something like that, depending on the theater. So I'd always have a little pre-run on my Blu-ray before the film of our sponsors and that kind of thing. So I'd make sure that the event was paid for and any kind of marketing cost. And then we would just make money off of ticket sales. Um, plus merchandise sales. So that kind of helped us generate more revenue for festivals. So like Auslan, we just told everybody, whatever we make on these screenings and merchandise, that goes directly back into marketing and festivals. That allowed us to submit to whatever festivals we had, do the Hollywood premiere and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you've got to kind of, especially short films, there's no way you're going to make money really unless you're selling copies of it and that kind of thing. So you got to kind of figure out what your, what your audience wants. And we kind of figure that out. People really like a one night showing where you kind of have this big event um, and you get to meet all the cast and crew, but also have merchandise available. Then have that available at festivals too. Um, and a lot of cool giveaways. Like we always do a lot of fun, like, uh, like for the atoning, we had black gumballs mm-hmm. at the Oxford film festival. So we had little back, um, little bags of black gumballs that turn your mouth black. Um, and so we kind of gave those away to make sure people came to our screening or just kind of noticed the film, um, which is the biggest thing at festivals, the independent film, you got to get people to notice your film and choose it over someone else's. Um, so it's kind of this little bit of competition. So I think it's a mixture of finding ways to make money off of your merchandise and your screenings, but also finding ways to just engage people and give them cool free stuff so that they remember your film. So you had a kind of entrepreneurial spirit with the first film. Is there a reason why you didn't do self-distribution as opposed to going with the distributor? Hmm. Yeah, I just I think for the right kind of film, self self-distribution works, mm-hmm. but there's no way you're gonna get into Redbox. Um, right. You're probably not gonna get a foreign deal whatsoever, and you're gonna have to hustle like crazy um which with ozland it was is kind of like self-distribution we had a distributor um but they the distributor only had so much they can do for the film and a lot of it with any distributor really it all relies on you and how much you and your team can push the film and um i could tell directly you know how much i worked that month promoting ozland really resulted in how much i saw in that quarter um and when i just didn't have the time you know my quarterly statements were worse um and it got really exhausting um, for the past two years promoting Auslan that way. So that's why we kind of wanted with the atoning to make sure we could um, get a distribution opportunity that we felt would be a little easier on us, even though we're still going to market it like crazy and promote it. Mm-hmm. But if we can get things like Redbox and international deals that kind of help offset some of that um, and to get us just maybe a little bit more notoriety just so we don't have to hustle quite as much. Um, so if you find if you find a good distributor that can actually do what they say they're going to do, like Gravitas does, uh, right. it's a good it's a good co- it's a good combination. Right. Yeah. Gravitas has I mean so far has done great for us. We're you know we're still pushing like crazy because we want to make sure people order it on iTunes beforehand so we can get you know new and noteworthy mm-hmm. you know, placement that kind of thing. So if you're on iTunes, check out the atoning and pre-order it. I I know the feeling. I've just I literally just went through that two weeks ago. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. So let me ask you, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn in the film business or in life? 
Hmm. I think the longest, I guess, in, it just goes with film, life, when I had my video and photography business, like I had actual storefront, was that you can't work 24 hours a day um, and you have to have a social life. Um, because I, from 2010 to 2014, I never dated, didn't have any kind of much of a social life. Everything was always centered around work every mm-hmm. weekend with a, you know, you know, it was a gig of some sort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that helped me, you know, get a house and, you know, be able to have a place to live and all that kind of stuff. But quality of life wasn't as good and it got really stressed and it makes it really hard for you to be creative. It took me forever to actually write Ozland um, because of all the work before that. I just never had time to sit and think and enjoy life and experience life to where I could actually let that influence my writing. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 2014, I started dating and actually living a life. And then that made this film that I wrote um, because I had a breakup at that time. So I actually had this life experience that I funneled into this film called Antler that I have written that I want to make at some point. But it made that film so much better because I actually had life experience to put into it. Um, and a lot, a lot of what was in Ozland was some, somebody like, I guess me wishing I had those life experiences and talking about, and kind of what I was writing in that film was kind of my own experience of, there's a character in there called Emery and, um, he wants to know what love feels like and what it means to actually have love, but he doesn't understand what love is because he's kind of in this post-apocalyptic world with no real frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of me saying, you know, I've never actually dated. I'm not, act, you know, um, I'm gay. And so at that point I was in the closet. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't allowing myself to live and be myself and kind of was burying it in my writing. But now that I'm out of that, I'm actually, you know, in a good relationship and mm-hmm. have someone by my side helping me. It's like, wow, life is so much better. And the atoning would not have, I could not have survived the atoning process if it wasn't for Cody, my boyfriend, mm-hmm. because he was there with me making sure everything worked. And whenever I was going crazy and literally having like a panic attack um, just because I was so stressed because it was such a quick process. You know, mm-hmm. he really helped me through that. And had I not done that and I'd not taken time to live and have a personal life and all that, you know, I would have just been stuck working and been unhappy and probably not have made any real strides in my creativity. I wouldn't have actually been able to make things that I felt were worthwhile creatively. Um, so yeah, you just got to find time to, to live life and experience life and take time away from work. Mm-hmm. But then you also got to find time to sit and be still and be creative and, get into that headspace. Balance is the, the yes, key word. It's tough. Balance. It's not easy for us creatives. <laughs> no. Without quite... You can always be doing something, but sometimes you just got to say, not today. Yeah, I know. I, it's a struggle I go through on a daily basis. Um, now, what are three of your favorite films of all time? Oof, that's, I hate that question. I know. Um, just three that come to your mind. Okay, well, Beetlejuice was my first ever favorite film. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I probably was watching it when I was five years old, and it's the first film I ever remember seeing. So like, Beetlejuice is up there, but I can kind of tie with Edward Scissorhands if you're doing Tim Burton films. Nice. Um, but outside of that, Black Swan's one of my favorite films. I think it's brilliant. It is, um, it's a brilliant movie. I can't wait to see his new movie, Mother. I, I had no idea he was doing that until I saw a trailer and it said his name. And I was like, wait, he's doing this? So I was so excited. Um, um, oh, gosh, I don't know. But I mean, also, I mean, this is kind of a touchy one, but Titanic is one of my favorite movies of all time. People <laughs> give it such a bad rap, but I think... You know, I'm just so amazed at what they accomplished and, and that kind of the underdog story. Everybody thought it was going to fail, um, but it became you know so popular to, to the point that people hate it because it's popular right. and because it made money. <laughs> right. um, but I think it's just I think it's brilliant because when I watched that film, like I remember where I was when I saw it. I was fifth grade with my parents, crying my eyes out. They almost took me out of the theater because they thought I couldn't handle it. But I was like, no, I am watching this. So I cried the whole last hour. And now if I hear that penny a little penny whistle thing. I just want to start crying. And so it, it affected me emotionally, but also it made me want to make movies. Cause I was like, I love 
everything they put into it from the costume design to the special effects like I just think it's an epic piece of filmmaking. But I mean, uh, but you... but there was room on the on the board for both of them. I don't understand why he had to die. <laughs> no, well, okay, no, I always defend this is because <laughs> had he gotten on there, it would have been slightly submerged into the water, and they would have been in both somewhat in the water, freezing to death. So at least she was mm. out of the water. So I'll, I'll <laughs> it looked like a pretty big boat piece of wood to me. But I'm just saying. True. True. <laughs> Very cool. Now, where can people uh, find you, your work, your company, and uh, your film? Well, my social media handle is Shindopen, S-H-E-N-D-O-P-E-N. That's for my film company, Shindopen Films. Um, But you can also check out Ozland, the film, on iTunes, um, Instagram, Amazon, all those places. But also The Atoning is on Instagram and Twitter as The Atoning Movie. It's on Facebook.com slash The Atoning. And you can pre-order on iTunes right now or go to Redbox and add it to your wish list and, you know, all that fun stuff. I'll put it all on the show notes. Thank you so much, Michael, for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And good luck with the film. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We all really need to learn these set of skills, man. To be able to shoot in one location or, or to make the location that you have the most visually stimulating location you can is invaluable to create extra production value in your low-budget movies. If you want to get links to anything that we talked about in the show, just head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 186 for the show notes. And today I want to end the show with the same quote we started the show with because it's now my favorite quote and I'm honestly going to put it on a shirt. The dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. And that was by Lori Grainer from Shark Tank. I saw it last night. And uh, she said it, and I was like, no, that is genius. So put it on a T-shirt, wear it around, spread the word. The dream is free, but the hustle sold separately. As always, keep the hustle going. Keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.